0: What up guys, it's Lisa here and another banger episode of Women of Impact today. We have the most famous body language expert and TED Talk speaker with over 24 million views. Dr. Amy Cuddy is here to drop her knowledge on the simple tricks you can use to stand up for yourself in any situation without even saying a word. I know guys, I know it sounds like it's a superpower and if only we could stand up for ourselves without saying a word. But today, you actually can learn how because Amy has given us so many nuggets of wisdom based on a ton of research into how our body language affects the way others see us and how we actually see ourselves. So Mahom, if you're ready to start conveying your worth and show up, more confidence in your life without actually having to say anything, then I suggest you get a pen, you get a paper, you get your notes, because today's episode is filled with actionable advice from Amy, and it's exactly what you need to hear in order to give you the tools so that you can show up badass and confident. Guys, I'm Lisa Binney, and welcome to Women of Impact. Whether you're going on a date, walking into a boardroom, being disrespected to your face? How do you stand up for yourself and show your worth without saying a word? What you
1: want to do is adopt body language before you go in that makes you feel more powerful. So we know that powerful animals adopt really expansive, big body language, right? Non-human primates will pound their chest, they can make their hair stand on end to make themselves look bigger. Chimps will hold sticks out like this. They also occupy like higher spots, like they'll sit at the top of the hill, they'll spread out more. All animals do this. Peacocks, you know, raising and fanning the tail feathers, a cobra. You see it across the animal kingdom, but humans do the same thing. So when they want to convey power and status, when they feel it, that's what they do. If you look at people winning in athletics, the moment they win, what do they do? This exactly, and they're opening their chest. Their arms are up in the air. They lift their chin. They open their mouth. They are making themselves in a way fully vulnerable, but only because they feel so strong that they can do that. So think this is a vulnerable position, especially like, that, if so with the neck. If you're doing that, in totally the neck? exactly opening your mouth. Your you know your gut, your heart, all of those things are are you know are are accessible to a potential predator, but we're feeling powerful and strong, and and we know that we've got it. So not only do they reflect how we feel, they also cause how we feel. And so when we adopt powerful, expansive body language, it changes how we feel. It improves our confidence, our sense of power, our sense of agency and self-efficacy. It even makes us happier. But there's a difference between what you do before you go in and what you do when you're in the room, Mm. right? So I had a couple of people after my TED Talk came out write to me and say, I went into a job interview and I adopted a power pose and it didn't go well. I'm like, yeah, I probably should have made that more clear. Don't go in with your hands on your hips and your arms (laughs) in the air, right? Like that is off-putting. And because in interactions, people don't actually like shows of dominance. focus on intimacy not intimidation <laughs> we can come back to that but before you go in though in privacy you can do whatever you want if you're in your house your car your a bathroom stall your you know your own office, make yourself big put your feet up on the table you know stretch out you know yell take long strides you can do all of those things you're preparing your mindset for that situation you've already prepared your content at that point you got to stop preparing your content what you're going to say you don't know what they're going to even ask in any interaction so go in feeling powerful and that translates in how you interact in that situation people pick up on that feeling of power Um, when you're in the actual interaction you want your body language to be strong and open but not intimidating not off-putting what we find is that like people used to come up to me after talks well they still do and and one of the most common questions i would get is I've got this person that I interact with at work and they're always using super alpha body language. What do I do? What's super alpha body Just language? Just like really, really, you know, yeah, hands on the hips. They're in your space. They're... um it's aggressive kind of and the funny thing is that the question itself is revealing people don't like that kind of body language they're not they're not saying <laughs> you know i have this guy at work who's using dominant body language how can i enjoy this interaction what? they're saying like how do i deal with this guy and so and and that's telling and we've we've done research using what we call uh, what's called eye tracking where you can actually tr- track a person's gaze and you know exactly what they're looking at and in a way it tells us a bit about what they're thinking. So we had them look at pictures of people who were in powerful or powerless postures. We know in the animal kingdom that animals avert their gaze from from individuals of their own species that are showing dominance. But humans do the same thing. So if somebody's behavior, you know, has a, a dominant posture, people don't look at their faces. And it's partly out of fear, but it's partly out of dislike, right? It's just, it's a turnoff. And so in the interaction, you, again, you want that body language that shows I'm confident, right? You want good posture. You want to be standing up straight, you know, arms out, but maybe palms up and leaning forward in a way that says, I'm interested in you, you know, as opposed to I'm going to get you. (laughs) So yeah, intimacy, not intimidation.
0: With that intimidation pose that you just laid out, if you, you know, like in your space, is there a difference between if a man does it versus if a woman does it? Men are
1: far more expansive in their body language than women. Um, So when a woman does it, she is much more likely to experience what we call stereotype backlash, which means she's deviated from the prescribed stereotype of how women should be. And people don't like that. And so she's, yeah, she's much more likely to be sort of punished that. People will, you know, those are the kinds of, like, heads of state, female heads of state who do things like that. It gets played over and over again, right? We talk about it when it happens all the time (laughs) with men. Um, So the gender differences as adults, I think, are really interesting because they're not innate. They are learned. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed is that around the age of 11, girls start to collapse. So their body language changes. Think about little kids, you know, girls and boys both are like running with their arms up in the air. They're flopping around, they're doing cartwheels, they're jumping, they're, you know, they're not afraid to be like messy and loud. And then all of a sudden like middle school hits and you see these changes. Like the girls are pulling their sleeves down, like holding their hands over their sleeves. They're touching their neck and their face, playing with their jewelry you know they're they're shrinking all of that is is low power body language and it increases for girls when they get to that that age that that middle school age and so we wanted to know knowing that there's a difference for adults in body language What's happening? Why is that changing at that age? And is it learned or is it innate? Is it something about puberty? And so what we what we did is we asked four-year-olds and six-year-olds to look at pictures of actually this doll, but in expansive poses like that or contractive postures. They looked at 16 pairs on an iPad. And we just said, point to the boy, point to the girl. It's and the just same context, doll. It's, it's,
0: new, it's a gender-neutral.
1: Totally gender-neutral. Yeah. And in fact, we thought they'd think, you know, they 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 wouldn't be able to answer it because they'd go, well, but it's the same. What do you mean? It's the same doll. But at age four, um, about seventy percent thought more of the expansive ones were boys than girls. By age. Six, that goes up to 85%. But I think more alarming, at age four, only 13% thought that every expansive one was a boy. By age six, almost 50% thought every expansive one out of 16 pairs, every expansive one was a boy. So they are learning this. We know that because kids learn stereotypes around the age of five. And so if you see that difference, you know, they're learning that we are teaching them that. And so we need to get in there early because they don't start expressing it until that age, like 10, 11. And we, I think we need to get in there earlier when they're still expanding and make sure that we are not even, even implicitly or unintentionally signaling to them that they should make themselves smaller but we are and I've I've talked to parents who say I don't want my daughter to feel powerless but I'm afraid that if she is expansive or takes up a lot of space she'll be bullied or she'll people will be angry at her and so they feel that they're protecting their kids but they're not protecting their kids so I think we need to teach our daughters that it's okay to take up space to share their ideas to you know to speak up they want to do that we're the ones kind of shutting it down and we have to learn not to do that yeah
0: God when I heard you talk about that study it was so like eye-opening of how us women as adults end up showing up um accidentally without us realizing because we've adopted this behavior as a kid and then I also heard you say that around we' when we walk into a room seen for the first time, we're basically judged 50% by our body language immediately. And so when I take that all together and I really put it together, no matter what us women are trying to achieve in life, when I think about us being behind the eight ball, because we've been taught this, because we have adopted these small demeanors type postures, and now you get judged, 50% of it, you know, they say don't judge a book by its cover, at least 50%. Then no wonder when we walk into a room, we already feel a little low self esteem, low confidence, um, compared to, and again, I I love men, so I'm never trying to put men down. But compared to, then a man who hasn't been taught that can walk into the room with that kind of bravado, right. and then you immediately perceive him as more confident. Which, unfortunately, sometimes then perceive you perceive them as more competent.
1: Exactly, and and that's another. We also complete those two things: mm-hmm. confidence and confidence, which are not the same. Someone can be very confident and not confident, but they're not they're not the same thing. But yes, our body language is like layer upon layer. It's a domino effect. right? So we start to make ourselves small when we're kids. I mean, when we're, like I said, around age 11, that makes us feel small, that we get that reinforcement through how other people treat us. And over time, it just becomes reinforced, reinforced, reinforced. So by the time we're adults, and we're we're, we're it's very hard for us to snap ourselves out of how we are used to carrying ourselves, you have to show your worth to yourself. So if you feel valuable, if you feel worthy, that is what you project. So, and I'm not saying that it's it's just that simple, but I think one of the things people focus on when they're thinking about how do I convey that I'm worthy is impression making. So they're thinking already about the other person and not thinking about what the other person needs, but what the other, how the other person sees them. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem because you're no longer present. So backing up, the thing that makes people feel good about themselves is to understand who they are, what they value. And we call that self-affirmation. When we talk about being like your authentic self and the value of that, a lot of people For a lot of them it's not just not knowing how to show their authentic self they actually don't know who their authentic self is like who is your authentic best self and so the exercise i have people do is one that's been studied in you know hundreds of psychological experiments and it is called self-affirmation and what people do is they they write a list of the things that make them who they are so if i said Lisa, what makes you, you? So if, if, if I were to take this thing away, you would no longer be yourself. What would you say? What, what you could just list a few things, things that are just core to who you are.
0: Strong, kind, empathetic, relentless. Okay. So that, so what you would do, so you'd list those,
1: you might rank them. And then take the top two, one or two, write a paragraph about why it matters to you, and write a paragraph about a time when you really were able to express that part of yourself and how it felt. That's called self-affirmation. And what psychological studies show is that when people do that, not only do they feel better, but they perform better on unrelated tasks like a math test or you know, midterm exams, their stress goes down, their circulating levels of epinephrine go down. And like, why is that? It's because they've anchored themselves in who they actually are. And so they know that however this interaction goes or this test goes, they will still be, you will still be kind, strong, relentless Lisa when that's over. It doesn't matter if you fail. So the funny thing is that it it takes your focus off of the stressful thing in front of you, which in turn causes you to perform better on it and to know that in the end you are who you are. No matter what that person thinks of you, you're still going to be you. So I feel like that is the first step. Like before we even think about how what we project to others, we think about uh, ourselves. And, you know, I, I often say how you tell your story to yourself matters. It matters so much more than how you tell it to other people because if you don't believe your story who else would believe your story like if you don't buy what you're selling who else would buy what you're selling you know and so i feel like it does start with knowing who you are um, and and feeling grounded in that person and knowing that whatever the weather is your roots are strong
0: That's, I I didn't expect that answer and I love that. How does that then echo into how you walk into the room? What's the difference then between someone who's done that exercise and actually has built their self-worth and then somebody who hasn't done the exercise and actually has low self-esteem? Somebody who's done that and does feel good about themselves
1: is going to walk into an interaction in a way that conveys confidence without arrogance that is harmonious and what i mean by that is the, like the emotions conveyed with their words match the emotions conveyed with their body language mm-hmm. so they're synchronized and like i said they it's very clear that they're convicted and they buy what they're selling and that those are the traits that come across they come across as calmly confident and i think confidence is interesting because a lot of people women in particular are afraid of seeming too confident that it will be off-putting and that's just not True, arrogance is off-putting. Confidence is not, and in fact, true confidence is grounded in in strong self-esteem and the ability to to take negative feedback and actually hear it. Right to, to if it's constructive, and so I think all of those all of those qualities. You know, harmonious uh, communication, confidence without arrogance, and buying what you're selling. Those are the those are also the kind of the components of presence. And when we are present, we are so much more effective. People are much more likely to hire us, to ask us out on a date, to um, invest in us. Um, and those are those qualities also have long term predictive value. So people who show up like that aren't just good investments for a day. They actually stick with it longer. They stay at the job longer. They inspire their coworkers, the people that they're around. They are more innovative. They're more likely to be promoted, et cetera. And that, that, that's true for your, your work life and your non-work life, right? So those are the qualities that you give off. They are really appealing to people, You know, we convince by our presence. We convince ourselves and we convince other people. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between then the confidence and the arrogance in the way it shows up? Confidence and arrogance, I think, are often conflated, but they're very different. Arrogance is actually grounded in what we call fragile high self-esteem. So fragile high self-esteem is self-esteem that looks good on on a, a survey, like a person would answer 10 out of 10 on all these things, but it's not actually high. And, and, and so what happens is, you know, if you put a pin in it, they they it pops very easily and makes them defensive. So arrogance is sort of like a weapon that people use to prevent people from challenging them because they know there's nothing behind it. And so they've got to keep up that wall. And it does prevent people from challenging us, but not because they trust us, because they want to get rid of us. Confidence is, a tool. It invites others in. It's welcoming. People want to be around confident people. It's reassuring. And it's reassuring not just in the workplace, not just with your boss. You want your employees to be confident, but you also want your friends, the people that you date, you want them to feel confident. It reassures you. We feel safer around people who are genuinely confident. They're not trying to one-up us. They just they they um they know who they are and and that that makes them much easier to be around.
0: Yeah, and that's why I so love that you know for people how you mentioned it earlier about your TED talk. It's like your TED talk is like the second largest TED talk of all time. It is insane the amount of views. It's like fifty million views or something like that. It just past seventy million. Seventy which blows million in my mind. Like I, I can't even get my. Head around that. That's insane. And you coined the phrase power pose. And of course, now everybody does it, you know, like Wonder Woman. Of course, I'm a massive fan of Wonder Woman. So really having that kind of idea of making it kind of fun, I actually really like. And I really want to start like digging deep. And I may ask questions that may seem silly, but there were ones that really came to mind that I was fascinated about. Like, for instance, if you do the power pose and then you go on a date, versus you do the power pose and you go into a boardroom. Is there any difference in how you exude your confidence in these different areas. It's
1: interesting because this ties to the gender piece. People, I think there was this belief that men would be more attracted to women who look diminutive and closed and fragile, right? But there was a study a few years ago looking at profile, sorry, dating profile pictures and what they found was that both men and women were more in tra- attracted to women women and men in powerful postures in those pictures. Yeah. So so women who were in powerful postures did not did not experience that penalty because they looked confident. And again, confidence, true confidence is reassuring. People want to go out with someone who f- is confident it's going to be an easier just at the very least if nothing else happens it will be an easier conversation so i i think that's really important that that women not believe th- that they need to look like small and fragile for men
0: to be attracted to them if you have big beautiful incredible audacious dreams for your online business but you actually lack the confidence in your ability to then actually make it happen And I promise you, my homie, and I say this with all the love and compassion in my heart, your company will never get where you want it to go. I've been there, guys. In growing quest, I had to face myself every day. I didn't know what I was doing. And I really wish that I had Shopify at the time. Because when you choose to grow your business with Shopify, you have everything you need to make your dreams a reality. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with their incredible magic AI, award-winning customer service, and the internet's best converting checkout, you literally have everything you need to make all of your amazing businesses' dreams a reality. And that's exactly why I adore and love Shopify. If you're serious about growing your freaking badass business and you want to build your confidence and have faith, then Shopify is here for you. So go over right now and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase, guys. Again, that is go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. One more time, that's shopify.com slash Lisa. You won't regret it. So what about then the difference between putting on this confidence? Because you actually said it earlier and didn't want to interrupt you, but putting on the confidence When you walk in, let's just say, a room full of men versus putting on that same confidence when you walk into a room full of women. When I actually find this stuff fascinating because part of me wonders whether it's um, the confidence mixed with warmth. Right. And if you need the warmth more with a woman because they need that as the sign of, oh, you're welcoming to your point, right? It's more welcoming than just confidence in and of itself. Yeah. So that's my, it's funny that my my primary area of research was... um,
1: Looking at stereotypes of competence and warmth, so that we developed this model of stereotyping um, in the early two thousands that really got away from the idea that stereotypes are just one dimensional, like good bad, and showed that people are actually stereotyping most groups on two dimensions: competence and warmth. And we see ourselves as competent and warm, and we see the people like us as competent and warm. But most groups we see as high on one. So either warm and incompetent or competent and cold. And we're wrong about that. So we see people with disabilities, older people, as warm and lacking competence. Mm-hmm. And we see high-status minority groups as uh, as competent and not warm. And those things are not true. right? So we're more likely to help somebody who we see as warm and incompetent, but we're not going to invite them to join our our work team. And we're more likely to work with someone we see as competent and not warm, but we're not likely to invite them to be our roommate. Mm -hmm. And so those two dimensions really matter. And with women, it breaks kind of into subtypes. So for example, and I think this is changing, but working women... Tend to be seen as competent and lacking warmth. Um, Whereas, you know, um, stay at home moms are
0: much more likely to be seen as warm and not that competent. Do you think that that's because back in the day we've had to adopt the strength? And like, I don't know if you actually heard Hillary Clinton talk about this, where she said, when back in my day when Bill was president, People didn't want emotion. It was like, "Oh, come on, suck it up. You're a woman." Like, "No, here she is crying. So she learned to be strong. And then when she ran for presidency, people were saying she lacks the warmth. Even when she was,
1: she, when she was, you know, first lady, it was right. people, people perceived it that way. Yeah, that she wasn't warm enough. Right. And but yeah, and then she cried once, right? Like I, I, it, when she ran, and people were like, "Oh my God, she actually has a heart." Right. You know, so. It is tricky, and there are there are just so many double standards um, for women around this issue. Um, I think that I I think that we also get warmth confused with sort of you know being like very emotional, and you can be warm and strong. You know, warmth really is about being trustworthy and showing that you're trustworthy. And so I think um, you can be empathic and compassionate and still very clearly come 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 across as strong and be strong. And that's the sweet spot for everyone. Everyone wants leaders who are both warm and competent, but being warm doesn't mean that you have to be a pushover. Um, Talk to me about uh, posture and high risk. I've heard you talk about that. Oh yeah. So we had originally found in our studies that adopting expansive posture before uh, an opportunity to take a risk led people to, to, to Enact riskier behavior. Those those um, results didn't always replicate. So I can't say for certain that that's true. What I can say is that for certain, adopting expansive postures causes us to feel more powerful and psychological power enacts or activates what we call the approach system, which includes things like higher risk taking, more optimism, um, more creativity, uh, more likely, we're just more likely to act when we feel powerful. We we interpret um, challenges not as threats, but as opportunities. So our feeling of agency is much higher, which means we feel a much greater sense of control. And so we are naturally, when we feel more powerful, far more likely to take risks. And sometimes those are good risks, and sometimes those are not good risks. So we need to check ourselves. Um, But yeah, I can say for certain that power causes people to be willing to kind of put themselves out there in ways that that we don't do when we feel powerless. And I think this is, I've been thinking a lot about this, because I feel that we're in an age of powerlessness societally. As a result of the pandemic, where we literally did lose control of our lives, um, to some like everybody did to some extent, but also you know um, geopolitics, um, a culture where screaming at each other has become the norm, you know bullying behavior has become normative. Uh, we yell at each other if we think somebody said the wrong thing. There aren't second. Like all of these things have led us to feel powerless. And I think that we are just kind of sitting here letting things happen to us. And what we need to keep in mind is that when we're feeling powerless, we are inhibited. So it's not the approach system that's activated, it's the inhibition system that shuts us down. We don't trust other people. We are afraid to take risks to put ourselves out there. We're we're much less creative. We are much less brave. We don't help each other. People are much more likely to help each other when they feel powerful, which I think is really interesting. It goes against our stereotype of power as um, a force that corrupts. Right. Um, my favorite quote about power is from uh, Robert Caro, who, uh, a historian and the biographer of Lyndon Johnson, who interviewed lots of powerful people, and The Guardian once once asked him in an interview— Does power corrupt? And he said, power does not necessarily corrupt, but power always reveals. It reveals who we are, right? So we're braver. So in this age of powerlessness that I think we're in right now, I don't think we're doing a very good job of making progress. If we're afraid to stand up and say what we believe, if we're afraid to step in and help somebody who we see being bullied, I mean, there's so many examples I really want to get us out of this collective sense of powerlessness because it's not helping anyone. And in those moments, corrupt people will exploit us. When there's a a power vacuum and we're sitting around feeling powerless, that's when you get people doing really Machiavellian manipulative things to, to, you know, I mean, sorry to be kind of dramatic, take over the world, right? Like, so we need to find our power. We need to find our voice so that we
0: don't allow that to happen. Yeah, amen, sister. So mm-hmm. let's say I turned down the volume and I was just watching and observing somebody. What would powerlessness look like in somebody sitting there? If I turned down, I couldn't hear what they were saying.
1: Uh, you would you would see a lot of this, probably face touching, neck touching. There arms are closer to their bodies so i call it penguin arms like so, so you're they're sort of they don't know what to do with their arms why is that it's it we're protecting ourselves and so we're we, we're trying to protect our our, our bodies left- and so we keep the arms pinned in um shorter steps they they would be breathing like t- taking shorter steps hmm. they're not move their movement is more um co- sort of condensed uh, like when people walk, when they feel powerful, they swing their arms more, they take longer strides, they move more up and down vertically, their shoulders are back. So powerlessness looks the opposite. The pa- the, the shoulders are forward and collapsed, um, lots of face touching, legs closer together, and you will see people are speaking more quickly. So even if you're not hearing the words, Speech has nonverbal characteristics, like how quickly we speak, how low is our voice. People speak much more quickly when they feel powerless. They breathe more shallowly and quickly as well. And so you will see all of those things. And like you said, even if you turn the volume down, you're going to pick that up so fast. And in fact, it it's a guilty pleasure for me to watch like political debates or Shark Tank and turn the volume down and watch the body language. And you can read people so much more quickly. You can see if they're feeling powerful or powerless, but also you can see if they're lying or telling the truth. And it's much easier to see, I shouldn't say lying, but if they believe their story or not. Oh, how do you, can you tell that if the volume's down? Even the powerlessness cues are so overlapping with that, you know, that, that sense that, that they, they are self-doubting. If they look powerless, they are just, even if they believe themselves before they walked in, something about that situation caused them to doubt themselves and what they're doing. And so you're going to see that in their body language. And then what about eye contact? Oh, eye contact is really interesting because, all right, so if you ask people, how do you tell if somebody's lying? 72% of people will say eye contact, but eye contact is a terrible signifier of lying because there are huge cross-cultural differences. So some people learn that you do not make eye contact with somebody with authority. There are individual differences that are based on personality, like introversion and extroversion. There are household differences. Like some parents teach their kids, you don't, don't, you look at me when I'm scolding you or something like that. But what is a good cue is this discrepancy between the emotions we're conveying with our words versus the emotions we convey with our body language. So think about being a kid and maybe you lied to your parents to stay home from school. So you said you were sick, but you weren't. What's happening is you're telling a story that's false You're suppressing a story that's true. That's already eating up a lot of cognitive bandwidth. So you get the words right, but your body language is probably going to betray you because you're not able to choreograph the body language. And so you're actually really excited because you're going to sit at home on the couch and eat chips and watch, you know, watch TV shows or something and so you're trying to suppress all of those emotions and and what you get are nonverbal leaks and that's the best way to tell if somebody's actually lying but back to eye contact people feel there is also this false belief that making a lot of eye contact in something like a job interview helps you and what people do is they err on the side of too much eye contact, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Oh which just feels <laughs> aggressive. It's like that alpha body language is awkward. And those people do less well in things like job and college interviews. And the better trained the interviewer is, the worse they do with more eye contact. So we eye contact should be, again, engaged and showing interest, but not... Tr- not trying to intimidate or dominate, right? You got to look away sometimes, you know, give people a break. Same thing with firm handshakes. Like we shouldn't be crushing people's bones when we shake their hands, but we were taught like strong handshake, but you can definitely go too far with that as well.
0: But doesn't a handshake actually kind of tell you something about the person?
1: It does. And I know people have differences in how they receive this. I think a handshake that's, you know, where you might show me like you might go like this yeah. i i mean in with us that that to me feels comfortable and i'm sort of saying i'm happy to be here i guess it can also be seen as domineering
0: wait really? because don't presidents do that as well where they put their hands they their do shape? yeah do you think that's more than the domineering i perceive it as like kindness and sweetness i i think it depends a lot
1: on the person but um i think it can be a way of showing sort of yeah, trust and engagement. Like I'm, I'm here, I'm really here to make progress. I'm, I'm here to hear you. Um, so I, I perceive it generally as a positive thing, but I think it can probably be used as
0: an intimidation factor as well. Interesting. So that's where, like, it's quite confusing sometimes, it right? Is. Because whatever scenario you're in, if you're trying to read signs and signals. There's so many nuances to well, if they do this, and if they're like this, and if they is this environment. Yes. Um, so that's why I love this because I love the complexity of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually was thinking of like how much of things are situational. Right. Very much. Yeah. But that's why I like teaching
1: body language um, as a way to change the way you feel about yourself because that is much more predictable. So we know that adopting powerful posture changes how you feel about yourself and how you feel about yourself is going to really powerfully influence the body language you use in an interaction in a way that's organic, right? So you're not choreographing your body language. It's happening naturally. And so whenever we try to choreograph body language, which goes into that impression management bucket it comes across as awkward, and that's why what we call "I am" tactics, um, like shake a hand this way or that way, often I backfire. Uh, impression management. Okay, okay. So those tactics backfire because they don't come across as genuine, and th- and they're sometimes not consistent with your other body language, and they distract you. So you're so focused on what you're saying and how you're saying it, and that it 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 kind of falls apart and you seem awkward and so you're much better at convincing yourself through your body language and then taking that person into the interaction and it goes much better than trying to choreograph all of these moves
0: yeah i think that's so powerful in once you also know how to then use those uh body language to impact yourself because i've heard you also say that um if if you sleep or wake up in a fetal position, then you're more likely to have anxiety. Yeah, we were interested in whether
1: sleeping position affected how you feel. And about forty percent of us are sleeping most of the night in the fetal position, so curled up. Um, we can't change how people sleep in an experiment because it's too disruptive to their sleep. Because then you're now you're waking them up all the time. But, or 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 you're sort of like holding them in place and that's not comfortable. So this is a correlational study. We So what we did is for two weeks, we sent out surveys to the same set of, of people and it had like 50 stick figures in different sleeping positions that were more or less contractive or expansive. We said, circle the one that's closest to how you woke up this morning. And then we had them fill out a state anxiety scale, scale which means how anxious are you now? the people who woke up in contractive upper body positions, the lower body didn't seem to matter, but the upper body did. They were significantly more anxious than people who woke up in more expansive postures. Um, And so it's hard to change how you sleep, but you can change what you do before you get out of bed. So if you wake up clenched up, you know, don't go run to your phone and check your email. Don't get out of bed. Spend a minute in, you know, like stretched out like Usain Bolt, just winning a race and then put your feet on the ground. Those are the little things that we can change. Like when you're brushing your teeth, hold your hand on your hip. You know, if you work at home and so you're not moving much before you go to work, get up and take a walk around the block and swing your arms and your legs. Like get yourself Moving in these expansive ways so that you can reset yourself for the day ahead of you. All these little things. Pay attention. The way you hold your phone. I mean, holding your phone slouching like this, it's not just bad for your posture. It's bad for your mood. Um, and so be mindful. We found that people who hold their phone like this and have their legs kicked out do not feel less powerful. Uh, uh, compared to people who hold hold their phones like this so think of all the little ways during the day that you are contracting or expanding and you know first notice what are the things that make you contract because that varies across people and you know f- know that when those things happen so, so once you figured out okay well When I have to interact with this person, I feel myself contract. Or when I have to talk about this topic, or when I have to give negative feedback, or whatever it is, once you figure out what those things are, you can you can control your body language. Don't contract. Force yourself to not contract when that happens, and it will change the way that things feels to you. So the next time you you have to approach it, you're going to feel differently. And it, slowly over time,
0: you find that it doesn't scare you anymore. These are the things that maybe we don't realize that then have a knock-on effect to how we feel. Yes. That feeling then has a knock-on effect to our interactions. That interaction may then go as planned. And then that makes us feel worse. And so to your point of like, if you've woken up in the morning anxiety and you don't even know why. Yeah. It can have enormous effect throughout your entire day. And then when you go back to bed at night, how much you're beating yourself up in your own head because of the things that happened during, throughout the day.
1: Right. I, I I am so about knock-on effects, right? Mm-hmm. Because very few things change with one action. And I get so frustrated with those kinds of promises. You know, I, anyone who tells you just do this thing or if even just these five steps and your life will change overnight, it's just not true. It's, it is knock-on effects. I say tiny tweaks lead to big changes over time. And so you just have to get yourself in the habit of, of, think of your body language as an important dimension of your health, of your physical health, but also your mental well-being. Like pay attention to it. It is affecting you all the time. Your body and your mind are constantly in conversation. It's not just your mind telling your body, what to do? Like, okay, run. <laughs> your your body is signaling back to your brain. I'm in a safe situation. I'm in an unsafe situation. You know, if you're if you're slouched over all the time, you're not feeling good. I mean, people with major depressive disorder are much more likely to be slouched in these powerless postures. So, clinical psychologists um, at the University of Auckland did studies showing that when they got depressed people to sit up straight, just sit up straight for two to three minutes, it significantly reduced almost all of their depression symptoms. Oh, Now, for that to stick, that has to become a daily practice. Oh. But it's also a way of thinking about therapy as more than talk therapy. The way that you carry yourself, your, your mental well-being, your happiness is dependent on your posture, on how you move, on how you stand. You know, you're kind of going through a set of poses uh, and they are changing the way you feel. I just want people to be so much more mindful of their body language, especially if they're dealing with a challenging situation like like a toxic person. I have so many friends, people I care about in my life who are getting themselves out of toxic relationships and i don't use that word lightly i mean truly toxic relationships people who 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 intend to make them feel bad so that they can control them so getting out of those relationships some are you know further along in that process you know some are are not in the relationship but they're not physically in the relationship but psychologically that person is still, you know, on their shoulder saying bad things in their ear. Others are still in the relationship and trying to get out. And I see them collapse. I see how powerless they feel. I see it in their body language. And to those people, you know, I just want to say be big, take up space you deserve to, and it is going to restore to some extent your own sense of self-worth and confidence and power. You know, and, and and then you will interpret that voice from that toxic person in a different way, you know, and you'll see that they're coming from a place of fragile high self-esteem. They don't actually feel good about themselves and they have no right to take your power away. So take it back. Make yourself big. Um, you know, even when you're, you know, sitting at home alone, don't don't sit on the couch all, you know, in the fetal position. Stretch out. I mean, yoga, for example, I mean, 10 years ago, there really wasn't that much research on the effects of yoga. It was all, it was believed and it was sort of rooted in ancient wisdom, but we didn't know for sure. Now there are so many experiments on yoga showing the incredible benefits of adopting these expansive yoga poses and the breathing that goes with it, which is also expansive. We breathe slowly and deeply, and that changes the way we feel. So, you know, we can be expansive in the way we breathe, the way we speak, the way we sit, you know, the way we uh, stand, the way we move. Uh, It just, it's endless. It's infinite, the ways in which we can
0: be more expansive. Wow. I Thank you for breaking that down. And so much of my audience really do come from that place where either they're in a toxic relationship or they've just left. And to your point, it's like it haunts them. Yes. And when I think about, like, no bullshit, what actually damages us women and our confidence, I sadly keep coming back to relationships. Yeah. That even if you're successful in any other area, if you've had someone that has dinged or knocked you down your confidence, it is so hard to get back. Yes. And and keep in mind that people who bullies
1: are, are going to go after people who they feel threatened by. Right. And they do feel threatened by um, a confident woman who's having success. And so, you know, it's so common because the book that I'm writing now is on adult bullying. It's called Bullies, Bystanders, and Bravehearts. And inspired by my own experiences as the target of bullying, but also... The research on bullying and bravery, and interviews with hundreds of people who've been through this. And what you hear again and again when it's a, uh, well, women are more likely to be targets than men. Men are more likely to be bullies than women. What you see is women who were doing well. I mean, they were competent and they had great relationships, but they hadn't had any major successes um, or hadn't been acknowledged publicly as soon as they have that big success or they are they are um they're noticed they're rewarded that's when a bully comes out of the woodwork and here they are in the most the moment of their life that should be making them feel the most confident and and instead someone is telling them you don't deserve this you know and 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 trying to find ways to poke holes in who they are and it doesn't matter. I've interviewed people who are, have been on top of the world, are wonderful people, are physically strong, are, are emotionally strong. But that experience, it is devastating. Bullies don't let up. They will keep going. Once they are fixed on you, they're going to keep going because they have to disappear you, because that's the only way their narrative remains true, right? If they can't disappear you, then you're going to eventually challenge them, and people are going to say, wait a minute, I thought you said that about this person, but there she is still doing well. So they, you know, they will stigmatize you, they'll silence you, they'll ostracize you, they will do everything that they can to poke holes in who you actually are, Um, they will make you look incompetent, and they will make you look untrustworthy. So I've interviewed people, people who've been badly bullied, who've gone through terrible health crises, been in big accidents. You know, they've overcome enormous physical challenges, a lot of them. This is the thing that makes them want to die.
0: Is the bullying.
1: Just, you know, trigger warning. It is almost every person I've interviewed has said, I wanted to die, or I i was suicidal. And many people do end their lives because what what is most important to our survival is having a community. And when you are sick, physically, you have doctors who know what to expect. They're taking care of you. Your friends are, and family rally around you. But when you're being bullied, it is like, Everyone disappears because they're afraid. They don't want to be associated with you because they're afraid they'll be next. So you don't have support. You don't have doctors saying, this is what's going to happen. This is how we're going to treat you. Instead, you lose your community. And our survival is dependent on having other people in our lives. You know, we are wired to need people. And so when
0: we've lost our people, it feels like the end. Is that why, let's say the bully is a partner? And they try to actually isolate you from other people. Absolutely. Bullies, whether it's a
1: workplace bully, a a schoolyard bully, or a a partner who's a bully, they need to isolate their target. So in the workplace, what, what that looks like is, you know, they make you so stigmatized that other people don't want to be around you, right? But why do they do that? Because if targets find each other that's a threat to the bully right right because then they're going to go wait he did that to you too he did that to me oh he did that also to this other person then they're going to fight back then they have strength they don't feel alone when they isolate you you, 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 have no one to validate what's happened to you. To say that was wrong and you didn't deserve that. You've done nothing wrong. And so that's what partners do. I mean, we, you know, we know they do that, right? So they, 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 that's what cult leaders do. I mean, they isolate you from the people who are going to say, How you're being treated is not okay.
0: You know, I've got a lot of people in my audience who have been in toxic relationships. And the thing that I hear over and over and over again is they wish that they had been physically abused to almost validate the emotional abuse so that other people could see what was really going on. Right.
1: I I see that too. It is easier to explain to other people when you've been physically abused it somehow again like the world sees that as wrong but somehow the emotional abuse they don't know what to do with but i also think it's self-validating and i i'm not saying that people want to be hit but they know they know that physical abuse is wrong when it's happening to them, but the emotional abuse is so confusing. And the intent of emotional abuse is to put you in a tailspin of confusion. And so it's, it's, it's weirdly self-validating when you are physically hurt by a partner or a parent, um, because the emotional abuse is just so confusing, not just to other people, but even to you, for you to process. You know, when you're hit, you know, you can feel anger. Or sadness, like, you know that was wrong. But the emotional abuse, you start to think, I must have done something to deserve this. Like, how else could someone treat me
0: this way? I'd never treat someone this way. So I must have done something to bring this on. Yeah, God, I'd never even thought about that confusion part and how it then is like, well, no, this is just like it. basically black and white it's like oh you have a bruise somebody hit you wow that's very evident to see versus he said she said potentially right where it becomes like a toxic dynamic where um and as i as we're talking about this and i think about body language and how we really show up is that something to look out for because so many of us don't speak up for a long time Should we be looking out for like our girlfriends and our homies of like, wow, she's shrinking like her body. That should be a sign to me that something's going on that she's not articulating. Yes. And I'm seeing this right now with someone I really care about. And I,
1: I see her, her body language change. I know that she just got a text from that guy. Like I. I know that's what happened. What happens? My husband and I both
0: see it. What do you see when someone gets that? She
1: shrinks immediately. She's she's so funny and outgoing, and and she's an athlete. She's very physical. Like, but but when that happens, it, it is it is like this. And and you, it's not just her tone of voice. She shrinks. She stops moving. She she's not like moving her arms around. I know. And, you know, it's interesting because I taught my son who's, you know, he's an adult now, but he was very interested in all of this, which was great because he was like, tell me this, teach me this. And I started to notice when he first got on social media, like, I don't know, 13, something like that, when something bad happened because he would shrink. And I'd go, what just happened? He'd be like, what do you mean? And I'm like, I know something just happened. And he'd go, Oh, well, I was on Snapchat, and this guy said this or this. And it was always something happened, somebody was mean, somebody was being a jerk, and I saw his body language change. And I'm like, Put your phone down. We're going for a walk. We're getting... And so now he knows. He sees it in, in himself. I mean, it's, and now it's not social media so much, but just maybe a, a, an an interaction that made him feel bad he will get away from it, take a walk, sit up straight, adjust his body language before he responds. That's actually a really good strategy. I think it's, I mean, that's the self-awareness. Your self-awareness is not just about, you know, your psychological state. I mean, it's, it's not just about your brain. It's about what you're doing with your body. Mm-hmm. Self-awareness should should include that
0: Yeah.
1: when we think about it.
0: The other day I, um, Everything was going wrong. And it was like just shit was hitting the fan in every which way. And I really needed a focus. And I was like, I'm so scared; My mind is everywhere. What do I know? Oh, music for me is my jam. I put on some music, some powerful, like, and it happened, at the time I was like, I need some Seer, like yeah. the unstoppable song. I need to put it on. And I didn't mean to, but I had it in my head, in my ears, in my little AirPods. And as I was singing it, I was like this. And I was so, I couldn't almost give my arms more expansion. And as I was doing it, I then realized, oh, you're doing the expansiveness. So it was interesting to see how your body sometimes instinctually wants to do something when you allow it to. Exactly. And you need to give it the little cue
1: that allows it to do that. I, I mean, for me, you know, roller skating and music, I mean, live music, because I know that when I'm, you know, feeling bad, I need to dance. I need to be, I need an excuse to move my body in that way. And I know that when I dance, I do expand. I raise my arms. You know, I'm, I'm a very much an arm dancer, and that makes me expand and that makes me feel better. So does music, but it's a combination of things, right? So, yeah, what do you need to do to force yourself to expand or to like to unlock yourself a bit so that you can expand? And if it's music, that's great and it might be something else for people like running or um watching a movie that makes them a feel-good movie that makes them laugh and jump up out of the
0: couch or something mm. i love that because like everything we talk about today like all the nuggets of gold that you've dropped become a cheat sheet for people yes and that's what i'm always trying to do like I'm so tactical because sometimes I can't get out of my own way when it comes to my emotions. So I need something to go to every time I feel badly. And you know, I did the power post, thank you very much, by the way. I did it in the restroom the very first time I did my TED talk, uh, TEDx talk, because I was so petrified. Yeah. So giving these people giving people tactics in order for them to be able to force the emotion yeah. that they're trying to feel in order to show up the yes. way they need to show up. Because The the toxic people, the people being disrespectful to you, whether it's a partner or someone in your life, we find it very hard because of how we've been taught for a kid to stand up for yourself. And sometimes when you stand up for yourself, just the quiver in your voice then makes you feel nervous to then say the things. Right, right. Also to think about these things as moments,
1: like no one's permanently present, but if you are it's fleeting, you can't be permanently present. There are a million things that are distracting us and that's just life, right? You know, you've got like virus detection software in your brain running all the time, (laughs) you know? Um, Worrying about this and that. But I think that again, for people who are getting out of these unhealthy relationships, you don't have to change everything all at once in how you carry yourself but get through one um, challenging situation, feeling powerful. Allow yourself that. Say, even if you feel so bad about yourself that you don't feel like you're allowed to feel good, say, well, I'm going to allow myself to feel good for the next hour when I go out with my friends, or when I um, go pitch this idea, or whatever it is. Give yourself that one hour, and then it will build upon itself. Again, knock-on effects, right? That once you've done it, you saw that you can do it and and then you know you can do it again. I mean people forget that their attitudes to a large extent follow their behavior. So if you if you ask people that the earliest studies on this, which is called self-perception theory, they were trying to figure out people's preferences for different brands of whatever, like like uh, um, laundry detergent, for example. And they'd say, you know, what's your favorite detergent? And they'd find that people liked, when they asked them why, in the end it came down to, well, it's just what I buy, right? So it's like they buy it and they assume that's their preference. But that's not just true for, for marketing. It's true in life in general. Often our attitudes follow from our behaviors. And so if we do something with confidence, even if we are faking the confidence a bit, we know we can get through that and it makes it a, a little bit easier next time so yeah our perception of ourselves is largely based in what we do and our memories of how we
0: did that oh that's so powerful yeah are there any types of behaviors whether it's body language eye movements or anything like that that we actually misinterpret on a regular basis I like, I heard you say, for instance, which I never even perceived it, but, like, you said, what is it, the the twisty feet, twisty ankle? It's it's actually this. The twisty ankle. Yeah. So I think that this is fine, and and
1: leg crossing is fine. And honestly, because of just anatomy and women's Mm. hips, so, you know, on average, women's legs tend to go in, and and their knees are closer. Men, because their hips are narrower, their legs, their their knees don't Mm -hmm. get as close. Yeah. And so it's easier. It's more comfortable for us to cross our legs. I think that's fine. But sometimes I'd like see underneath the seats when I'm teaching, and I would see people like this, and I don't know if you can see that, yes, but twisty feet, twisty, yeah. twisty legs, right? Yeah, and that that is definitely a sign of powerlessness. It's that's you know, you're starting to protect yourself here, I think this is an interesting one, steepling or tenting people call this. And this is actually a sign of of power because you don't walk around with your fingers spread, (laughs) right? You're still expanding. So I think this is another one that people just maybe don't misinterpret, but don't catch. And they might be watching someone speak who starts like this, but starts to spread their
0: fingers. And that shows that their confidence is increasing. Uh, Going back to what I was saying earlier about how when you like switch the volume off, um, so often when me and my husband are going on dates, we'll look at other couples. And just by their body language, we're trying to establish if it's like first date, if they've been married for 20 years.
1: We should go out together and do this. I
0: would love to. It is, I gotta say, I have intervened.
1: Like... I can't help it. I see for, you can see a first date. You can tell from across the right, room. Tell me
0: exactly what you see then on a first date that you don't normally see on other dates. Um, I mean, there's definitely just like nervous body
1: language. There's that you know they're looking at the menus more, right? They're, they're, they're because they they don't know what to talk about. Um, there's yeah, there's fidgetiness, but I also see often in on first dates um, if it's a man and a woman, the man is often talking more than the woman, a lot, a lot more than the Interesting. woman. Interesting. I, and, know, I thought you would um, and then the guy gets up and goes to the bathroom and the woman's on her phone and you know she's texting your friend like, this is a complete bomb. It's not going well at all. But sometimes I see that and I want to get up when the guy's in the bathroom and be like, go, just leave. leave. Just cut your losses. Get out of here. <laughs> you know. Um, but you also can see, I've also seen somebody gets up to go to the bathroom and the other person is like smiling and texting and you know that they're going, this is, I love this guy. This guy is so great. This woman's so great. Um, So I see, I see that happen as well. It's, it's hard to, I mean, you also see like when people are, have been together for a long time and they're maybe bored with each other and I know plenty of couples who are not. I, I, my husband and I have been together for a long time, and we're not bored with each other at all. And it sounds like you and your husband are not at all bored with each other. But sometimes, like you just see them. I mean, they're doing their own thing. You know, they're they're sitting. They are on their phones, but not in a a, a way that's
0: sort of apologetic or like they're just disconnected. Disconnected, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting that you said. I, I didn't expect you to say that men talk more on the first date because. I think over time, women talk more. They don't. That's a great, thank you
1: for bringing that up. I forgot about this one. Women do not talk more. Women, men talk more than women. There have been so many studies, and that is, that is a false, totally false stereotype. Men talk more than women, period. On average. I'm not saying every single one, but
0: on average, men talk significantly more than women do. Interesting. Yeah. When I watch couples out, you know, at restaurants, it's... I actually, it's interesting because yes, if guys do seem to be more like engaged and like to kind of keep it going, um, but I also notice sometimes where you have a lot of the guys that look disconnected from the conversation and the yeah. woman's just talking to them and they're like not paying attention, and so that almost is a signal. I don't know if I'm right, I'd love for you to tell me or not. That seemed like a signal like they've been actually together for a long time. That to me seems like that the guy too. probably. I don't want to say it, and I'm just assuming neglects the woman a little, and now she's got a moment with him where she can just say all the words.
1: So I do think that happens where um, people, right, yeah, women who are home and their partner, or any, any person who is home and their partner is working all the time, when they get together, it's like a total brain dump. So the person who's working might be talking plenty at work, and they're kind of burned out, but then the person who's at home finally has a moment when they go out and it's just this total dump. And then by the next day, they slow down. But uh, like the beginning of vacation or something, there's one person who's like talking all the time and it's the person who's usually at home. Um, Who's
0: not around people? Yeah, my husband actually likes that fact that now we're in business together because on a Saturday I'm like, I don't want to do anything, I don't want to go anywhere, and he's like, Thank God, because back in the day when I was the stay-at-home wife for eight years, wow! Oh, the second he got home, I was like, We're going to have for dinner, we're going to do this, and I would just talk his ear off. And I do think those are end up being signs. It didn't feel good. I'm going to be honest for me because he was just tired. Yeah. And I felt like it was one way. And so, um, yeah, when I notice it in relationships now, when, you know, if we're at restaurants, part of me, like, feels really bad that mm-hmm. that the person that's talking a lot, to your point, I don't want a gender stereotype, but the person that's talking a lot has a need that may not be met.
1: Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. I have to say that I, I think this newly adulted generation I think they are doing much better in relationships. Like I think they're far more communicative. And I think there's more I mean first like again, i'm I'm not just talking about heterosexual relationships. like I, I just think there's much more balance and ability to listen to each other and less fear of conflict. so they they have learned maybe from you know, their from their parents. I think our generation learned these things, but, didn't totally put them into practice, but talked about them a lot. And so our kids learned those things. And I think they're doing much better. I think they're much more likely to nip things in the bud, like to not let things go on and on and on. I I think there's less also passive aggression. I think they don't, they've learned about passive aggression. They don't like it. (laughs) No one does, but they, they know what it is. They don't like it. And I mean, look, they, they overuse the term gaslighting, but at least they understand it. Like they, they see manipulation. They may not know what is gaslighting versus other kinds of manipulation, but they see it, they don't like it, and they don't want to be in relationships like that. I'm not saying everyone, but I definitely feel like their relationships are on average much better than ours were at their age, where I think especially, you know, a 20-year-old woman was much more afraid to speak up um, than what I'm seeing today.
0: Yeah. As a kid, I was patted on the head a lot. And so I was like, girls just don't talk unless spoken to. And now, could you imagine someone did that? I think that there'd be an uproar. So that lesson that I was taught, thankfully, isn't being taught to a younger generation. Uh, I think knowledge is power. So um, the work like what you do is really so freaking important because so many people are learning um, from you so that they don't end up. In a situation in their adulthood where they have to unwire, and I've actually heard you speak about before we were on, uh, on camera about how a lot of people are talking about uh, childhood trauma and how mm-hmm. that really does impact our current relationships and trauma bonding. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about your thoughts on that, and then your your new rev- revolutionary thinking. So what I what I've seen is more research
1: from. Uh, developmental psychologists and clinical psychologists showing that our attachment styles, which are really important in how we form relationships, which we always attributed to to parenting, are not just determined by parenting, which shouldn't be a surprise. But but so much emphasis was placed, especially on the maternal relationship, and so much guilt on the mother if things didn't turn out well for the child, but it turns out high school romantic relationships and friendships have a massive influence on our adult attachment style. So those conflicts with friends and um, romantic partners in high school deeply affect us. And so I think that we, and we brush that off. We think that they're just kids and it's a learning experience, but Kids can be very traumatized by bad by bad relationship experiences, by by mean friends, by friends who who you know who mistreat us. And I, you know, I, I've talked to therapists about this, who say, yeah, we're starting to focus much more on that now in our therapy with young people, like you know, to, to focus on the relationships they had in in with with people they trusted. In high school, especially,
0: and finding that like th- those relationships were very impactful. Yeah, it's it's interesting because people aren't talking about that enough. And in, I talk about being bullied when I was a kid, um, but it never dawned on me from also like the relationship standpoint from high school. Like that super, that really hit me because my first boyfriend was when I was 15 and he was very toxic and I was with him for almost four years. And so thinking about, how that uh, molded me and how it really wrecked my confidence. And it wasn't until I was out of that relationship that I was able to build up. And then to your point about friends, I had a friend that completely tricked me and had like this whole setup where the popular boy in school that I fancied came to ask me to the school dance. And I was so excited and we were gonna meet there and when I turn up at the school dance, him and my friend, who's the popular girl in school, were like dancing together on the fence That is just absolute cruelty. And so they it turned out it was all, all a setup. And when I think about that, my husband says, like, there's a part of me that is slightly wounded, which is very true because I still think. Yes. But also it's the thing I think that allows me to be so empathetic to people now.
1: Ooh. I agree. I feel the same. I mean that those those situations for a lot of us. It's funny. There there is this belief that people who were bullied become bullies. Mm. And I am not I got to say I'm not finding that to be the case. For the most part, what I'm finding is the people who are brave on behalf of others, they were bullied. So bullied mm-hmm. people actually are more likely to become what I call brave hearts and say that's not okay because they know how it feels. It happened to them. And so, yeah, so I think both, it does both make us better people, like braver and more courageous on behalf of others, but it also really wounds us. It's That's coming from, you know, to some extent, a, a, a deep and very painful wound um, that does affect how we trust or don't trust people going forward and what we
0: expect of them. So how do we potentially use looking back at our childhood romances, let's say, to be able to either let go or build our confidence now in the new relationship
1: i think one like do an inventory like kind of go write do some journaling um think about who were your most important relationships whether they were romantic or friendships and you know which ones were healthy which ones were neutral which ones were not and 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 really think through, right through those unhealthy ones. I bet you will notice moments. Um, you will remember, you will have what we call flashbulb memories, like mem- memories that are so burned into us. And those were with those toxic people who really hurt us. So... And don't discount that. Don't dismiss it. Don't think that you're being frivolous to think that something that happened to you with a friend when you were 16 hurts you forever. Maybe it did. And that's going to be much more helpful to you in figuring out how to move forward in what you talk about in your therapy or, or whoever it is you're talking to or thinking, thinking through things with. Mm. So yeah, don't, don't it's not frivolous to do that.
0: Yeah, it's essential. Thinking through that of how much work we do now for the childhood and look at our parents, I think that this is going to be really strong for people to use this now in their uh, as an additional part of their healing journey when it comes to self esteem and looking at their own worth. Absolutely,
1: and and I think with our kids, you know, to to those of us who have kids who are teenagers, um, when they say something hurt them, yeah, don't brush it off. Don't don't think. Oh that you know soon you'll be out of the house you'll be at college or doing whatever and this won't matter anymore. It does. It will still matter. Help them process it now. Mm. The longer you allow it to be unprocessed, the more likely it is to develop neural networks, you know, traumatic neural networks in your brain, right? So why not nip that in the bud, Mm. right? Don't let it get deep roots and grow a lot of branches. You know, talk about it now so that you can, you can, um, prevent it from hurting you down the road it is worth it i mean take it seriously for yourself for and for your kids and teachers take it seriously like
0: mind those things they matter yeah and i've heard a lot of guys say about how much that's really impacted them when they were younger because so much of the language was like "Well, suck it up you know like be, be a man um and so it's interesting now how the world is changing, really saying, hey, we really want men to open up and be emotional. And what's interesting is, I think of the men crying, is that once upon a time, it was such a sign of weakness. Ugh. But now I think a lot well, of us- saw it as a sign of weakness. We saw it, yeah, exactly. But now I think hopefully the language is changing and it's like, no, that actually being in touch with your emotion is so damn important. Of course. And so for a man to be able to feel vulnerable- to be in touch with their emotions is a sign of strength. It
1: absolutely is. And I
0: think it's a sign of strength and it's also a
1: sign of ability to um, know yourself to, to, if, if you aren't allowing yourself to feel an emotion, you can't process that emotion. And that is incredibly important to everyone in your life, right? You know, I've heard people say, and I think this is true, the emotion is not the problem. It's how you deal with the emotion that's the problem or not. And so if we aren't, we didn't allow boys and men to even feel emotions then how could they develop the self-awareness to process them? And because they didn't, then it gets taken out in their relationships in ways that they really don't even understand what's happening, but that can be really hurtful to others and to them. So it is in everyone's best interest for us to encourage boys and men to to be allowed to feel those things, because you've got to feel it in order to process it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If not, it's just this like, you know, it's kind of this tumor that's just growing tentacles inside of you unprocessed. Yeah. But I think that the, the trajectory is still moving forward um, and changing how, how men and boys are being raised
0: and taught and given the permission to feel well, Amy, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. You Thank you so much. Where can people find you and everything amazing you're doing, your book, Thank and just you. all the work that you are um, doing? So, yeah, to. my
1: book is Presence um, Bringing Your Bold Self to Your Biggest Challenges. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of what we talked about, you can read a lot more about. There's so many fascinating. Um, take, you know, very concrete takeaways about body language and how it makes us feel. Um, you can watch my TED Talk on body language if you haven't. And you can find me on, you know, com. Also, I'm pretty active on, I'm very active on LinkedIn and Instagram. And um, look for the next book, Bullies, Bystanders, and Bravehearts.